Hello, this is Suzanne Morris, and I'm here uh, today with my seven letter colleague, Jeremy Crockford. And we're here today with Deanna Moran, who is Conservation Law Foundation's Director of Environmental Planning. We're here to talk about the recent Superior Court ruling on the Downtown Municipal Harbor Plan. Welcome, Deanna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Deanna, how are you? It's good to talk to you. Um, there's been a lot of media coverage of the court decision which was driven by CLF and which CLF won. Um, but it is confusing, even if you follow the news stories. Can you give us a, a, a kind of a, a overview of what the downtown municipal harbor plan does and, and what this court decision did? Absolutely. Um, and there's the wonky technical legal answer. And then there's the kind of, you know, what it actually means for us answer. Um, you know, we filed this lawsuit not because of any individual project, although that's kind of what it's made out been made out to be. Um, we really were um, trying to address the problems with the municipal harbor planning program itself. And so what we challenged in our court case was this idea that um, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, which is really supposed to be the public trustee of um, waterfront land, of tidelands, and be making decisions about development on tidelands, that they had kind of delegated that decision-making authority to the secretary of the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. Now, you know, that's a that's a politically appointed position. It's, it's very different than kind of having mass DEP who has um, deep expertise in tidelands regulating, making these decisions. Um, and it was, you know, that process was not challengeable. Um, so what we were finding is that, you know, when plans like the downtown municipal harbor plan were approved by the state, there was really no way to challenge that. Um, and what that really led to was that plan and that process prioritizing private interests over public interests um, and really kind of serving those who are politically connected and not making adequate space for the public who has the legal right to participate in that process and to access the waterfront and benefit from waterfront development really have an opportunity to kind of shape that plan um, or participate in that process. So that, that's what we challenged in court, um, and that's, you know, ultimately the grounds that we were successful in challenging. Um, and what the judge said in our case was, you know, that DEP, you know, they don't have the authority to delegate that decision-making power. Um, it's, it's their job as the, the designated public trustee designated by the legislature to oversee that process and to make those decisions. Um, and, and, you know... What I would say for folks who are not familiar with this municipal harbor planning process is that it really, you know, fundamentally has become a flawed process. It's a process that was well-intentioned, but has been broken for a while now. Um, and, you know, we really wanted to draw attention to that and to underscore all the problems um, with the current with the current process. Um, you know, the way that the program is supposed to function is it's supposed to provide cities and towns, a little bit of flexibility in deciding how their waterfronts are developed, um, because there are these state regulations that, you know, do tell them how tall their buildings can be and how much open space they need to have and some really specific requirements. Um, and that doesn't, you know, that one size fits all approach doesn't always 
fit for everyone. So it, it is important that cities and towns have flexibility. But the way that the municipal harbor planning process was envisioned to work was that cities and towns would plan for that flexibility over you know, an area-wide or neighborhood-wide area where they could make adequate trade-offs and they could say, you know, maybe we're going to build a little bit taller on this parcel, but it means that we're going to dedicate this parcel over here to more, you know, open space than we would have otherwise had. We want to have, you know, a big park here instead of a small park. Um, and when the program, you know, first got rolled out, that made sense and that worked. Um, and it worked for a while. But now that, you know, our cities, especially our waterfront communities in places like Boston, are mostly built out, um, cities and towns are looking at infill development. And it's not possible to make those trade-offs on an area-wide basis anymore because there's just not the land for it. So instead of kind of making those trade-offs on site in proximity to where the development's happening, um, it's really just become, you know, a, a mechanism for spot zoning, for, you know, passing these plans to give very specific parcels um, substitutions from what they would otherwise be required to do. And in exchange, all that's really being asked of them is to pay pretty arbitrary like lump sum payment um, that the city then gets to decide how they spend it to promote public access and benefit most times without any input from actual residents so so that's really what we hope to challenge in court and we were um, you know successful in doing so uh, that was a really good and comprehensive overview of both what the uh, municipal harbor plan is supposed to do and you know what the ruling meant but what does it mean for development on the waterfront so i think you know there's been as you, as one would expect a little bit of a overreaction to the decision from the real estate industry this idea that you know this this decision has somehow um thrown development into a tailspin, that there's this uncertainty and this chaos, you know, because of this decision. And that's really not the case. Um, you know, Chapter 91 regulations have existed for a long time now, um, and developers are used to having them be there, having to comply with them. Um, and in most cases, people who own property, um, you know, they bought that property not expecting to be able to depart from the regulations that are in place now. So there's really no issue, you know, I think for for developers um, who are, are kind of seeing this decision come down in terms of investment backed expectations. You know, we are seeing, you know, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty now about what this decision means for past projects, projects that have been approved, you know, a number of years ago that relied on these MHPs. What does it mean for those buildings that are already built? You know, I, I think we're, we're still trying to figure out and the state's still, still trying to figure out kind of what this decision means for those past MHPs. But I don't think it's anyone's expectation that we're going to be tearing down buildings. So, you know, I think all of those developers can, um, you know, feel some confidence that we're, we're not interested in the past. We're interested in looking forward, starting with the downtown MHP, um, which we, you know, we don't think that was done through, through a good process. And obviously that development has not moved forward yet. So there's still an opportunity to fix the mistakes there. Um, but I, that's what I would say is, you know, this is really about not looking backward, but looking forward um, and making this a better process so that you know, not only is there transparency for the public, but quite honestly, so that there's transparency and consistency for the developers, because this process isn't really working that well for them either. You know, there's so many of these decisions are made um, in a black box and they're arbitrary, especially the kind of calculation of these mitigation payments. 
um, that I think everyone, including the development community, could benefit from a rethink on how we approach this planning process and how we make sure that it's you know transparent, accountable, and equitable. I imagine that since realtors aren't very happy with this, I mean, a, a lot of them are at least the ones with really deep pockets who could pay mitigation, kind of liked the idea of sort of, as you put it, spot zoning, where they could then negotiate, okay, if we can do all these different things like height and blocking views, we'll pay this. But if that's off the table for them, is there a place, whether it's the legislature or the administration or cities and towns, are we seeing people going to work right now trying to reverse this or modify it so that developers can go back to doing what they want to do on the waterfront? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I have a couple of things I want to say in response to that. One is I think, you know, you're absolutely right. There are definitely um, those in the industry who liked the idea of, you know, this just being the the cost of business. And that's really the honestly the issue that we're trying to deal with is this, you know, idea that it's a pay to play, it's a pay to play scheme. Um, and, you know, as long as they pay enough money, they can get whatever, you know, substitution from the regulations that they want. Um, for those, you know, I think I think there's two things. For those who want to find a way forward, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do that. I think that there are ways for developers to, um, you know, meet their obligations in creative ways on site through either a combination of site-specific mitigation or in some cases payments. We're not saying that payments are off the table. Um, we recognize that some of these sites have some significant constraints and it's not always possible to, to meet all of their mitigation requirements on site. It's really just that that has become the default um, in, in the primary way of meeting these obligations. That's troubling to, troubling to us because um, like I said, you know, they're, they're paying in lieu of providing legally required public access and benefits. Um, so, you know, that being said, there are, there are always going to be people who want to kind of go back and protect the status quo. And I think we definitely are seeing that and we'll continue to see that. There's a number of, um, you know, avenues by which people might try and do that. Um, the legislature is certainly one of them. Um, I, I would say, you know, the, the legislature has a responsibility in the same way that DEP has a responsibility to really, you know, think about the, the public interests in this issue. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, to some extent, they're limited um, or, you know, they're constrained in what they're able to do when it comes to tidelands. Because, for instance, you know, if a request from a developer was, can you just kind of extinguish the public trust rights on, on my land? Can we just get rid of these requirements for me so that I can, you know, do whatever I want? Um, you know, the legislature can't just do that. They, they have to have make a, a pretty intense finding that, um, you know, extinguishing the public trust rights on a, on a property would serve um, a proper public purpose, which, you know, so that, that can't just kind of be done with a, with a wave of a wand. There's really um, a process that would need to happen there. Um, the other, you know, pathway is really kind of this regulatory pathway, which we are pushing for, which is, you know, how can DEP and EEA and some of these other state agencies rethink what the program looks like? We always knew that a rethink of the program would require, you know, some kind of a rulemaking process. And I think that probably is where we're headed. I think that the crossroads that we're at is we can either, um, you know, in the, in the kind of 
in the moment panicking at the perceived chaos, try and protect the status quo and do some type of rulemaking that just, you know, blesses everything that we have now and doesn't, you know, take it as an opportunity to rethink the program. That I think would be a mistake. Um, I think that the the better option is to take a breath, um, take a step back, and really see that see this as an opportunity. In some ways, a once in a generation opportunity to rethink how we approach planning on the waterfront and how this program could better serve the needs of the public um, and some of these other you know interests that weren't at the forefront when we originally created this program in the '90s. Things like climate resilience, things like equity. Um, those are things that aren't built into, built into the program. And this would be the perfect opportunity to um, reframe it and to rethink it to include all of those things that I think are really important in this moment. So what do you say to the critics who characterize this as simply anti-development? Yeah, you know, I think, um, I think that a lot of that comes from a misunderstanding of kind of the current framework for waterfront development. Um, you know, a lot of people are surprised when I talk with them and I explain to them how waterfront development in Massachusetts is different from development elsewhere. Um, because the area that we're talking about, these tideland jurisdiction um, areas, they're, you know, they're areas that are historically, you know, fill, they're fill. So a lot of Boston's built on fill, which means it was once water. Um, and it's all rooted in this idea of the public trust doctrine that everyone has the right to access and use natural resources like water and air. Um, and we codified that a very long time ago in Massachusetts. Um, and so, you know, some people I think are, are, are thinking of this as though these developers own these properties, they should be able to do whatever they want with them. Why would we, you know, push back and ask them to do these things that we're asking them? And it's really their obligation. Um, you know, it's it's the it's what they are obligated to do in exchange for being able to develop on the waterfront. Um, so it's really you know a privilege that the state is is granting to them in exchange for equal public benefit and public right and public access. Um, and so you know I don't think that we're asking a lot when we ask them to go above and beyond what might be required. Um, in, in terms of development elsewhere, more inland, because it's just different. The land is different. The rights are different. Um, and we owe a lot more responsibility in, to the public in developing the waterfront than we might, you know, ap approach development elsewhere. Um, I would also say, you know, I think I don't think that protecting the waterfront for public access and benefit has to be the enemy of new development. We want to see development on the waterfront. You know, that's part of what activates it. We want to see housing. We want to see, you know, retail and commerce. We want to see civic and cultural institutions. Um, but we want that done in a way that makes sense and in a way that prioritizes public access and in a way that um, centers, you know, resident voices and what they want to see and, and what is beneficial to them on the waterfront. And that's just not what we've been seeing. Um, and Quite honestly, I think, you know, from CLF's perspective, we're a huge proponent of housing production. We know how important housing production is. We know that Massachusetts is in a housing crisis. Um, and we know how important um, housing production, you know, especially transit-oriented develop development is towards our climate goals. And we're supporting that development elsewhere in the state. I mean, CLF invests in housing all over the state. Um, and, and we have a lot of advocacy that's oriented towards promoting that. Um, but here, you know, we're really trying to strike that right balance. And I think 
there's been kind of this false narrative that in some ways has been seeded by people who would like to see, you know, these requirements for waterfront development fall away to say, well, we can't meet our housing production goals and have restrictions like this. And that's just not true. Um, if you're if you're concerned about access to the waterfront or you know, runaway development or concerned that that somebody might try to undo the work you guys do, where is the uh, is it your legislator? Who do you who do you send an email or a note to saying the court decision was the right decision and we hope you uphold the right of the public to have access to the waterfront? I think there's a couple of um, things that people can do. I mean, one, even if the state takes a regulatory approach to this and they are looking to do a rulemaking, um, those rules will end up in front of the legislature for their blessing. So I think it's always important to write your legislature, uh, legislator, even if it's just to let them know what's going on, because some of them might not be aware that this is, you know, coming down the pike. Um, so, you know, writing them, letting them know why this is important to you and why you think that the decision should be upheld will help inform, you know, their potential review of um, a rulemaking from the state down the line. I think it's important to make sure that the state knows. So specifically, you know, Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, the Office of Coastal Zone Management, in the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, letting the heads of those departments in the, in the state know um, that we want to take this opportunity to rethink the program. Like we should not make a snap decision to protect the status quo. Um, we need to take a breath. We need to take a step back and we need to be really thoughtful about what comes next. And we don't want to see a process that's rushed. Um, I'll also say, you know, if this moves into rulemaking, um, there'll, there'll have to be a public comment uh, period. So whatever, you know, if the state, you know, doesn't heed that warning and they do kind of push forward with a rulemaking that would just kind of, you know, bless the current program, I would say people can comment on that during that process and they can say, you know, this is a mistake. Um, we should really, you know, this this opportunity doesn't come around very often and we should take it and we really urge you to, to kind of go back to the drawing board on this. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that if you're a resident of Boston, bring this up to your, your local rep, bring this up to your city councilor, bring this up to your mayor, um, because insofar as it relates to the downtown MHP, um, Boston has a choice. I mean, we've got a new administration. Um, we can, you know, collectively as a city, you know, take ourselves out of the equation and say, we're going to, you know, we don't want to see the downtown MHP, you know, be part of whatever the state's going to do. We want to, we want to redo on it. Um, and I think that that would be really beneficial for a number of different reasons. I mean, like I said, We've done so much as a city in Boston to think about resilience and, and equity. And like a lot of that isn't reflected in the plan. And, and some of that is because, you know, those studies and those reports came out later. Um, but this is an opportunity to go back and think about, you know, what we want to plan for in the downtown with all of that in mind um, and with a new kind of framework and lens in place and under a new administration. Um, and, and I think we should take that opportunity. I mean, the downtown Harbor is the most visited section of the Harbor and all I, all I do is hear people complain about how the permitting and the seaport ended up. Um, you know, do we really want to see that play out again in downtown? I think, I think it, it was a possibility that it could have played out that way. Um, if we hadn't challenged the downtown MHP in court, now we've got a choice. We can either 
you know, let the let the plan go forward and and cross our fingers that it doesn't end up like the seaport. Um, or we can say, well, we want to make sure it doesn't end up like the seaport. This is the most visited section of the harbor. Um, it's got some of our most important civic and cultural institutions that cater not just to people who can afford to, to you know, be part of programming on the waterfront, but everybody. Um, and we want to make sure that it stays welcoming to everybody. Um, and so that's the opportunity I think we have. So if you live in Boston, um, write to your local elected and, and write to the mayor and ask her um, to, to really take a step back and, and think about a redo on this plan. All right, Deanna Moran, thank you very much for joining us today. Great, thank you. See you, Deanna.